Let us ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word today. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we give thanks to you that your wisdom governs all things. Your wisdom, which is seen in all your works and covers all things great and small. And there is nothing too small nor too great to be outside your government and your providential care. Therefore, our Father, we come to you with thanksgiving, knowing that you are mindful of us, that all the days of our life the very hairs of our head are numbered, that all things come from you, O Lord, and shall serve your purpose, and shall be a blessing to us throughout all eternity. Our God, we thank you for your word. Please give us understanding so that we may serve you faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. At the conclusion of the sermon a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking and looking at God's word about what it says about uh, biblical sexuality, about the creation order of men and women, when we came to the end, we had four points of action that we could take as Christians, as faithful members <coughs> excuse me, of God's um, house. And these were, just to remind you all, because I know that despite everyone taking detailed notes and going home and reviewing them every week for weeks to come, we might need a refresher. So the points of action, thinking about what's happening in the world, were this. One, to confess our trespasses to one another and to God. So it is very important, of course, that we confess our sins um, to one another and to God as we think about how to work through what's going on in our world and in our lives. Second, we need to pray. We need to pray that God, by His will, would remove the blindness that is the curse upon so many. And sometimes we need that prayer for ourselves, right? We have issues we're trying to work through. We're trying to understand God's Word better, and we're struggling on it. And so we need for the Lord to open our eyes for better clarity, for better wisdom. But certainly, if there's going to be a change in our greater culture and in His church, God needs to remove our blindness and the blindness of those around us. Third, we are to make disciples, right? Disciples in our households, in our church, in our community. And of course, that means sharing the gospel, but then also working with folks in order that they may be, as the Great Commission says, teaching them all that I have commanded. That is so important. And lastly, and this is what we're going to talk about today, um, by the way, when I gave these, they were in different order. This last one was first, uh, because I think it's the launching point for all of these. But the reason I'm bringing up last today is because it's the very subject with which we're going to talk about. And I mentioned that what we need to do is to worship rightly. Okay? Now, I know some of you guys have been in the CREC or been in reform circles for a long time. You have it all worked out. You understand what's going on. But I have two things to say. One, if this is old hat to you, great. We all need to be reminded about why we do what we do. And guess what, people of God? Look around the room. Take a second. Look around the room. And do you see a lot of kids out here? 
a lot of young people, right? We want to remind them and teach them why we do what we do every single week. Now, for those of you, some of you may not be as familiar with this. We've had the Lord, by His gracious hand, has added many to our number. And many have no perspective, or just a little bit of perspective, about what we do and why we do it. When you come to church here, and there's a pattern. I mean, every church has a liturgy. Some of it's more structured. Some of it's not. But I do have a caution. You know, sometimes, if you can believe it, those of us in the Reformed faith, we can become very prideful in the fact that we have the corner on the truth, that we know so much, that we understand things so much better than everyone else. Listen, whether you've been worshiping in this fashion for a long time or these ideas are new or maybe perhaps even being revealed to you for the very first time today, you need to be humble. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 6, when he was speaking to his disciples after a recent engagement with the Pharisees and leaders of Israel, Jesus said to his disciples, he says this, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The people of Israel were called to be the priests and teachers to the world. And instead, they became prideful as the chosen people of God. They were chosen, but they, they lost their focus about what they were chosen to be. They felt like, okay, we are the keepers of God's word and the secret, esoteric, special knowledge. We have it. You don't. That makes us better than you. Their own vanity left them with an empty or vaporous or vain worship and a life absent from God. People of God, do not be prideful. We're going to go through what the scripture says that gives us the pattern of our worship. Listen, today there are going to be lots of churches earnestly serving God and not worshiping in this fashion. Now I would argue that a great deal of that is simply because they don't know. Many of them have never engaged in the thought of the scriptures and the pattern laid out there. But it is important that we understand that God is accepting their praise. Be it a little different than what God prescribes. So be humble. So with that, let's talk about church and worship. Number one, the very first thing is you must be in church on the Lord's Day. That sounds like, of course, you know, I'm sort of speaking to the choir to a degree, right? But perhaps not. Of course, everyone is familiar with Hebrews 10, 23, right? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner, and you might even could use word custom, of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So here in Hebrews, 
we hear this great promise of God. Let's hold fast to the confession. Don't waver because he who's promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful to us, right? And then it says we have to stir up one another in love and good works. You can't do that if you're not in relationship with other people, so we have to be together. And don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but let us exhort one another. So when you come to God's house, there's an expectation that you're going to hear God's word. You're going to be exhorted by the word of God. You're going to be strengthened by singing his praises about his truth. Perhaps another sermon one day will come about in relationship to why we sing the things we sing. But we are trying to sing the Psalms, the scriptures, the doctrines and truths of God, not simply that which appeals to our emotions. Now, emotions are important. God created us with them. And I'm not saying that we should be Stoics. You know, those Greek philosophers that say everything's bad, don't enjoy anything? No, that's wrong. I want the Lord's table bread to taste good. Right? I want the wine. Or for those of you that are taking the grape juice, I want it to be good. Right? You know, there's places where we should uh, tighten the budget. Buying the cheapest wine available is not the answer, says the man who used to be in the wine business. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, we, we need to recognize that we are here to be strengthened, encouraged, and blessed. And then afterwards, let us together speak and talk, and then throughout the week, and it, you know, having fellowship with one another at people's houses. But it isn't just the Apostle Paul who says these things. If we look at Jesus, and actually we read a piece of this uh, portion of this scripture of Luke 4 today during our, our uh, lectionary reading for the gospel. But in the beginning of this, in, in Luke 4, 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth. Okay, you remember what was happening when he read that. He said, where he'd been brought up. And listen to this. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. His custom, his habit, the thing that he always did. And it wasn't just a light habit. It was his permanent choice to be there. Unless we are providentially hindered, that is sick, broken down, etc., things beyond your control, we should be in church together. We should make the decision to be at church for worship only once in our life. And we need to be there every week, including our vacations. Now, I'm not saying don't take a trip anywhere. What I'm saying is, when you are vacationing, part of your plan in the vacation trip ought to be, I need to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day. Why? Because our lives are reoriented to God and by God each week when we come into his house with the brethren. You know, there's a, a custom um, that we have where I came from where um, when a young man goes to get married, 
we grab that guy sometime close to his wedding and we do what we call a circle of wisdom and we take that guy and sometimes we put him in the middle of the room um, sometimes the room isn't always oriented for that but he's in a place he's there listening and all the men of the church who can come come and in some cases you know you'll have 30 40 50 guys in the church outside sitting around and there'll be young men there and basically we start with the person that has been married the least and he issues a piece of advice and then we go all the way around all the way to the fellow who's been married the longest and we give him a chance to share a piece of truth now I'm gonna be honest I think that guy like you know I'm gonna pick on my son-in-law right over here for a second you know it was the night before he was getting married but, but even for the guy that's just a few weeks away, he's probably picking up about 3% because his mind's on other things, right? But he's listening. But you know what happens if you do that every time somebody gets married? All the other men, all the young men have an opportunity to hear a truth, many truths. And if you come out of that room and you don't say, man, I need to step it up here, here, and here, um, then uh, you are asleep. But why did I bring that up? I bring that up because one fella, every single time, and in the 17 years I was down there, we probably did, I don't know, 40 or 50 of these. Um, we just had a large church with a lot of young people getting married. But um, his advice was, you know, when, when I was getting ready to get married, one of the old elders, Mr. Carter, he came and said, Now, son, you make the decision for you and your family to go to worship just once in your life. You just decide, I'm always going to be there. And he gives, shares that advice. Mr., Mr. Carter, Brother Carter, he's gone on to be with the Lord. But this is true. We need to make sure that ourselves and our families are oriented to God and by God each week. Now, I have a couple of things here. How do we determine what, what it is should be in our worship service? Um, a lot of times people are going, they're looking just in the New Testament. Unfortunately, some churches today have taken the Old Testament and set it aside and say, you just got to look at the New Testament. And you know what happens when you start trying to chop up and say what part of the Bible is relevant? You know, then there's the, you know what the next group after discarding the Old Testament is? Well, we just need the words of Jesus, right? We just need the Gospels. And then the next thing is, no, it's not just the Gospels. We need just the words in red. We need just those words. That's all we need. And pretty soon, you keep narrowing it and narrowing it down. I want to point out a couple of things, and uh, it's funny how the Lord works. We were having the men's study the other night, and uh, one of the brothers brought up something. I thought, man, I need to put that in because that fits so well. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, says this in Luke 24, verse 25. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones. Oh, by the way, so Jesus has died, been resurrected. Um, most of his disciples haven't seen him. They don't know what's going on yet. Some of his disciples, including Cleopas, have, have, are walking away from Jerusalem, and Jesus goes and walks along with them on the road. But they don't recognize him yet. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So Jesus is asking this question why they don't understand this. And in verse 27, it says this, And beginning at Moses, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself validates the Old Testament right here. Never mind the fact that during his life he quotes the Old Testament more than 80 times. And the New Testament itself has more than 250 direct quotes and another 50 or so indirect references. The apostles and many of the followers of Christ would have had their foundation in Yahweh for the Old Testament and trainings on the synagogue. So let me back up and just say, that, say this a little more eloquently, okay? That, that the apostles, the disciples, they would have taken what they knew about the synagogue, the worship at the temple, all their experiences, their understanding from God's word to turn and look back and use that as the foundation to help them understand how to worship God. They didn't invent the church out of thin air. In other words, everything from Jesus' resurrection forwards all new. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. Right? He said he didn't come to do away with all these things, but rather to fulfill them. It's important that we recognize that, yes, Jesus did come, and when he died and was resurrected, that the ceremonial law was done away with. And we can talk about those distinctions a little bit, uh, but it's important that we just recognize there were some things that were called just to the people of Israel until the time of Christ. That's a ceremonial law that was just for them, and that God did not expect those same things for the God-fearers, those who were not Israelites necessarily to do those things. They could choose to be circumcised, they could choose to follow the ceremonial law, but it wasn't a requirement. That's very important for us to recognize. The sacrifices were temporary and had to be done over and over until the time of Christ. Now, I think that it is important that we recognize that we need to look for a pattern. I'm going to try to pick it up and there's going to be one long passage that's going to take us just a few minutes to read maybe three total but uh, you're, you're going to say there's a lot of detail in here and the good news is I'm not going to break down all that detail I'm just going to highlight a few things but I think it's important to hear the narrative but I want to uh, encourage us all by thinking about this uh, Jim Jordan in one of his papers says this, The book of Leviticus is extremely practical and valuable for Christian life and worship. But this fact is almost always completely obscured by our English translation. Leviticus 1 and 2 show that we ascend into God's presence with tribute and that he then shares part of that tribute with us in a meal with him. This is what happens in worship, forgiveness, ascension to God to hear his word, offering, and communion. But we cannot see this as long as our mistranslations like burnt offering and grain offering get in the way. And I just bring this up, of course, the first part, very important, the Leviticus, the Old Testament, but Levit Leviticus in particular, can be very helpful for us. There are some translation issues. I mean, everybody who's a good student of Hebrew knows that this word burnt offering really is ascension offering, but we still keep putting it in our Bibles that way. 
Um, and, you know, we have several issues like that, the grain offering as opposed to it being a tribute offering. I think muddles our understanding. We'll talk about that just briefly as we go through this. But as we consider this, we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 9. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to highlight a few things to be drawn out of this. Um, <clears throat> Leviticus 9, beginning in verse 1. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering or ascension offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering. And also a bull and a ram as a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. That's important. And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make an atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Aaron therefore went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Then the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, and he put it on the horns of the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe from the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide were burned with the fire outside of the camp. That's another thing you could do a whole other study on. And he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons presented him the blood, which he sprinkled around the altar. Then he presented the burnt offering to him with its pieces and its head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it and offered it for sin, like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. He also killed the bull and ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. And Aaron's son presented to him the blood which he sprinkled all around the altar and the fat from the bull of the ram and the fatty tail that covers the entrails and the kidneys and the fatty lobe attached to the liver and they put the fat on the breasts. And he burned the fat on the altar but the breast and the right thigh of Aaron was a wave offering or a offering that was lifted up before the Lord as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hand towards the people and blessed them and came down from the sin offering and burnt offering and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went to the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. <clears throat> then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And that ends this passage. Now there's a lot of stuff in there, and you could probably write books and volumes on that. I wanted to read it because I don't think we can ever um, back away from hearing God's actual word. Well, let's talk about the highlights here. First of all, there was a call. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass on the eighth day 
that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, Moses the elder called the worship. Ordinarily, in your local assembly, your elders are going to be the ones to call worship. So here, we've called, we're called worship for Sunday mornings. And imagine, if you will, if there was uh, an emergency, right? And there was a great travesty. We could call worship tomorrow. Let's say war breaks out. Now, there might be other preparations that need to be made, but coming and, and calling worship, that, that's what the elders are for, to call worship. I think it's interesting to note that it was the eighth day, which, by the way, that's what we're doing. We're worshiping on the eighth day. That's the resurrection day. I think it's just one of those foreshadowing things of Christ. And I want to be careful here. Let's say that we live in a country where the gospel's being suppressed and they start locking up the leaders of the church, right? So what do you do if there are no elders, right, ordained elders to call the worship, to lead the worship? What do you do? The answer is, well, then the deacons step up. And when they lock them up, other men stand up. And when they lock all the men up, you keep worshiping. You don't stop, right? It's important that we recognize that we should be worshiping God. Now, at some point, I hope, if they start locking us up, <clears throat> that somebody says, well, there's a point where we need to do it in hiding, right? I'm not opposed to that. As much as we can, we need to do it out front. But there comes a place where the persecution is so bad, we may have to hide. But... Right now, in an ordinary sense, God has called the elders to call worship. Finally, there is an order of the offerings. The pattern here is important. There's a trespass or sin offering, a burnt or ascension offering, a grain offering, and, of course, following all that is the peace offering. Now, I want to I take a minute here to talk about a couple things as it relates to the trespass offering, which is actually a little different than the sin offering. Um, and this is important to acknowledge because <clears throat> we as Christians and in our busy lives don't always prepare ourselves for church properly. Yeah. Oops, excuse me. So a trespass is this. I trespass and I sin against you. I owe you something. I've offended you. I need to make right. I've stolen from you. I need to go as best I can and address that before I come to worship. Okay, so you should be thinking about this in your homes, perhaps. On Saturday night, if you have a lot of kids like I did, you, you, you plan ahead, right? You get your kids, you bathe them all, you get your kids' clothes laid out, you make sure you found all the shoes for Sunday. Everything's laid out. You're doing preparations. Well, just like physical preparations, we need to look back and say, am I going to come to worship with unrepentant sin that I need to address. Now, we're not going to remember everything, but there ought to be things that we should be thinking about that we need to, to purify ourselves in preparation to come into the Lord's house. But then there is a sin offering, this confession. And in verse 7 it says, And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make an atonement for yourself and your people. This is why when we come together Right after the call, right, we worship God, and then we confess our sins. 
Next, we find the burnt or really ascension offering. And it says he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. What happens after confession is that God in his mercy ascends, that ascension, ascends us up to his presence. You know, many times I grew up where we were all, always asking God to come down, come down, come down. And we failed to see that in God's forgiveness, he lifts us up. You find that narrative in scripture all over the place. He lifts us up. And that is what the ascending, the ascension is. After we confess our sins and we begin to praise God, we're, we've ascended into his presence and we are together with him. Next, we see the grain offering. And it says in verse 17, he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar. Now, Here's what we need to know. In every other place, this word in Hebrew is always translated as tribute. And so it's important that we understand that, yes, it included grain and the first fruits and all kinds of other things going on here. But this tribute, this represented our work, our labors, our strength. So part of what we are to do is we are to give tithes and offerings. The tithes and offerings, those represent the fruit of the strength of our bodies, the strength of our intellect, the strength of the time and energy that God has given us. Now, if you've been coming here since I've been here, I've not preached a lick on tithing. I'm going to mention it here briefly to, for you to understand that this is part of our call in the pattern of worship. What is it about? Well, we should understand that as we think about tribute, right, when conquered peoples rendered homage to their conquerors, they paid, with this same, they paid this tribute with the same Hebrew word. When the Moabites were ascending over Israel, the Israelites sent Ehud with that kind of tribute. But instead, what did Ehud have? Anybody remember? Kids, I know you know this one. Boys especially. Right? He had a, he had a, a sword for the tribute. He was bringing judgment. But that's how he got in because he was supposed to be bringing tribute. And we see that the Moabites sent tribute to David. We need to recognize that tribute is simply understanding that God is our superior and all that we have and all the strength and all the things that we are are given to us by God and we are dependent on Him and we are showing Him the respect that's due Him when we pay our tithes and offerings. You know, what is it supposed to be? Well, Malachi 3 warns us about what happens when we don't pay our tithe. And by the word, the word tithe is simply tenth. That first part of what we make, that tenth, belongs to the Lord. And then there's the offerings beyond that. But Malachi warns us that what happens, that God brings judgment if we don't recognize and bring our tithe or tribute to him. Now, here's the problem. You've got to be careful. You can't wind yourself completely around this after all. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier measures of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These ought, 
these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, without getting into the whole technical stuff of why they were, they were giving those items, I want to point out that he says you owe the tithe and that you need to have justice and mercy and faithfulness. So you can't buy your way into the kingdom. This is merely us recognizing what we need to give to the Lord. Next, we find the peace offering. And it says this, again, from our Leviticus passage in verse 18, He also killed the bull and ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. Now this really represents the Lord's table. This table represents peace between God and His people and their children are included. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 14, tells us, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the peoples of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants with the altar? Now this is interesting because there's this whole tie-in here of the Lord's table. This is the peace offering. This is what we're doing here. We're just taking the imagery of the Old Testament and the peace offering where God met his people and ate with them. And we're doing it here, and we see Jesus mandating that later on. Now here, the, finally, we see that there is a blessing after all these phases, right? These four things that happen. Well, there's the call, there's the confession, there's the ascension, there is the uh, grain offering or your tithes and offerings, and there's the peace offering, and finally we see the blessing. In verse 23 of Leviticus 9, it says, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now listen, remember what Moses said in the beginning of this passage. He spoke specifically to the fact that the people would come here, do these things, follow this pattern, and that the Lord would appear to them. And he brought blessing to them. You know, all of this, at the end of the day, I've given us a pattern. What does this matter to us other than to know it, right? I can check that box. I know something. Well, it's very important that we consider that there are patterns of the liturgy, not just for worship, but of life. All of these things are training for us and for our children, and even to the nations. Deuteronomy 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them on a, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We need to make God's word and His worship the center of our life and our family's lives. Beware when you don't. 
we will begin to worship God in our own negotiated way when we don't worship God according to his word, when we don't make God central. We end up doing what is comfortable for us, the way we want, in a way that preserves our life the way we want it. Now, at the division of Israel from Judah, Rehoboam and Jeroboam divide Israel by God's hand. But listen to see what happens. God, even when he brought about the division, never had in mind that the people of Israel would stop coming to the temple. What did Jeroboam do? It says this in 1 Kings 12, verse 31. Jeroboam. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among other people who were not of the Levites. Psalm 7, so here it is. They're, they're going to do it their way. They're going to divide and they're not going to worship the way God prescribes. Psalm 78 reminds us again of the fact that there are these high places, these places where we're going to worship God our way. We need to guard ourselves. But in keeping with this, this is not a one-off because all the way in Jesus' life, these effects of worshiping God in different places and at these high places, Jesus, in John chapter 4, when he comes to the woman at the well, think about the narrative. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here's what, Jesus even reorients at this place and says, no, there is a right way. There is a right pattern. There's a right place. And we could get into the discussion at another time on worshiping in spirit and truth. But part of it is following God's word and his patterns. You know, it's important. I want to give that admonition. You come to know this. I don't want us to be tight. I don't want us to think I'm rejecting my brother and sister down the street today. What we're saying is, as this church, as the people of God here, we want to worship God according to his word. We don't want to try to do things simply what we want to hear, but to submit ourselves to God. And why is this important? Because in Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's the purpose? That we may go and make disciples and baptize them and listen teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you that's his whole word and praise be to God is his assurance at the end lo I am with you always to the end of the age 
That's his assurance to us today. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that all of life is a seamless garment and that where Christ is, all things are made new, that the very ground beneath our feet groans and can be a painful effort at times as we wait for that glorious liberty of the sons of God for the totality of the new creation. We thank you, therefore, that your grace and your work in us and our service unto you has its repercussions throughout all creation that our labor is not in vain, that your word never returns unto you void, but accomplishes your appointed purpose, that we live in a world of total meaning, and that meaning is the one that you have established. How great you are, O Lord. Amen.